Good morning. My name is George. I'm the spiritual formation uh, and outreach pastor here. And this is Becca, and uh, she's a high school uh, pastor. And we are super excited uh, this morning because it seems like every time we get together now as a congregation, as a community, it's just one celebration after another. And I think being here in the fellowship hall with everything that's going on over there and we're getting ready to go back and worship, it's just, it's a real privilege to be part of Wyzetta as a staff. I think, um, I love the spirit here. You guys are so patient, understanding, you knew all that was going on over there and then you volunteered to come to church at 8.30. You guys are definitely getting extra credit in heaven, okay? And particularly those that moved up, yeah? Servers. <laughs> One of the things I love best about the community at Wyzetta is how we study together, is how we're in God's Word together, is how we uh, tell we have a story together. This morning, we are in the conclusion of Esther. Um, it's a great book, and Becca and I are going to be looking at what are some of the takeaways from the entire series, okay? We've uh, gone through some themes, some biblical themes that have come out in Esther. What are we going to walk away with from this book, from this study um, that is real practical and how it plays into our lives. And I think one of the um, caps, one of the things that uh, just comes out of Esther is God's deep grace. So as we look at the whole book and we look at chapters 9 and 10 this morning, we're going to be looking at God's deep grace. So let's do a little recap from the very beginning. Because uh, it's not an easy thing. Esther starts out more as a tragedy than anything. She's a young Jewish girl. She's put into uh, the harem of a Gentile king. And it looks like everything is stacked against her. And then as it builds, it looks like everything is stacked against Israel. But I can't even imagine what is going through her mind um, at the very beginning. And Becca, you're our high school pastor. You work with... Um, Kids that are about the same age as Esther, what strikes you about this context? Yeah, well, first of all, I can't even imagine how scary it would have been for someone in her position, um, what she was experiencing. But I think some of the questions that, if I was her and thinking about my students, would come to mind is just why. How, God, could you allow this to happen? God, where are you in all of this? That's exactly it, I think you hit it on the head. I think uh, when tragedy comes up, when conflict comes up, when crisis comes up, first question is why and where are you, God? I think the answer comes when Mordecai gives Esther a message in probably the most famous verse in uh, all of Esther in chapter 4, 14. Mordecai asks her this, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time of the, as this. We know that God knows, right? And we've come to the end of the story, so we know now why Esther came. She came at such a time as that to save God's people and the kingdom. Throughout the book, I think there are all these signs of God's deep grace. Esther became queen at a time when Haman was trying to destroy the Jews, right? He wasn't just trying to kill some of the Jews. We're talking about genocide. Kevin walked us through the history between the Amalekites and the Jews and how revenge is on Haman's mind because these two nations have gone head-to-head for a long time. The Amalekites, Haman remembers how at the hands of Saul and David, they just had massive, massive defeats. So at the time of Esther, there's real peril for the Jewish nation. And the Jews are on the verge of being wiped out. So... Today we're looking at the conclusion, we're looking at the deliverance in chapters 9 and 10, 
And I want to look at Esther's response to Mordecai's question, right? Was her response to who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? What's her response? If I perish, I perish. Then she approaches the king at real risk to her own life. So looking at some of the practical application, I think there's a response for us today as a church. God loves his church. All his commands are for our good and for our joy. And I think his will for us as Wyzetta, as his church, is that our members are equipped to minister to each other. I think his will and his desire is that his great blessing throw, flows through the saints of Wyzetta to the West Metro and the rest of the world. I think we can see God's deep grace moving in Wyzetta, moving in our community, moving in our nation, and our response is this. We are being called to be the Esthers and Mordecais of our society. We are called to respond to God's deep grace by moving deeply with him. God's name is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther. The Jewish nation is scattered throughout the Persian Empire. Things look really bleak. There's an edict to wipe out the Jews. Where is God? Looking at the whole story, we see that God is doing 50,000 things on behalf of Esther and Mordecai and the nation of Israel. They don't recognize all that God is doing, but they hold on to the two or three things that they do, and they trust God for it, and they move out with deep faith into his deep grace. The book of Esther is a profound lesson in God's providence, in his sovereignty, and his grace. So therefore, what's our response? No matter what you're going through this year, no matter what I'm going through this year, our challenge is to hold on and know that God is doing 50,000 things that we cannot see, that we're not aware of, in our finite being. But he is working on our behalf. So we trust him, we love him, and we move out in those ways that we see him moving. Those are God moments. That's the Holy Spirit with a soft heart. And when you get touched like that, the challenge that I want to put out is don't rush by it. We see in Esther, we're going to come to the end, they have a whole holiday recognizing how God's moving. So when you see God move, don't rush by it. Recognize it. Thank God for that. I believe that we are called for such a time as this with all the 50,000 things that God's doing and moving. We as a church, Wyzetta, are called for such a time as this to do whatever it takes to serve the West Metro in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, let's jump into chapter 9. The last two books are pretty long, so we won't go through every single verse. But we'll kind of have a bird's eye view of the next two chapters. So let's just start at the beginning. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So this chapter starts out with the fact that the 13th day of the 12th month has arrived. And as the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower the Jews, the tables were actually turned in favor of the Jews instead. So as we've been talking about this whole series, we see another one of these coincidences where an intended outcome is being flipped completely upside down. But let's keep reading. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. 
And all of the nobles, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. So not only do we see here that the Jews are assembling, they're planning to destroy the people that were against them, the enemies, their enemies, but we also see the fact that other nations are starting to join their team, and not just that, but people of power and people of influence, the governors, the nobles. It seems like this probably happened as we read this out of fear and maybe even some political manipulation, but again, as we've been talking about, we see God at work in every little detail so that his purposes will prevail. Verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Delphon, Espatha, Paratha, Adalia, Iridatha, Permashta, Erasai, Aradai, and Vesatha. The ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So the Jews attacked their enemies, and they end up killing 500 men, as well as Haman's ten sons, which were the names that was very hard to pronounce. Um, but the chapter goes on, and it explains that Esther then requests that Haman's ten, son, Haman ten, Haman's ten sons that have already been killed be impaled, which was a sign of victory for the Jewish people. And she also requests that there may be a second day of killing. Now, we might not understand all the reasoning behind this, uh, but we see this as an example of the difference between man's sense of justice and God's justice. And so she requests this second day, and King Xerxes grants her request. And the second day, it says, The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protest, to pro- protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. As you may have noticed throughout these uh, passages, the author makes an emphasis on the fact that the Jews did not take the plunder of their enemies. And um, I think this just ties back into uh, the fact of where are they coming from? Why are they doing this? What is the motivation? And as we've been talking about throughout this whole book, that Haman and King Xerxes, their reasoning for attacking the Jews was really for personal gain. It was for personal profit. But we see here that the Jews are attacking their enemies because they are punishing them for what they wanted to do to the Jews. So after the second day is all done, the Jews have wiped out 75,810 some people. So the Jews defeated their enemies. There was this deliverance of the Jewish nation again. And this is consistent and connected to uh, the running theme throughout the whole Old Testament of God preserving his people. But I think as we read this, it's hard to ethically reconcile this issue of war and killing. So looking at this part of Esther, how do we answer the question of justice or injustice? Where is God in the midst of all of that? And George, I know this is a big part of your story, so why don't you tell us more about that? As we come to passages like this, I know many have approached... um particularly this passage and other passages where the destruction... um just seems massive, seems beyond comprehension, and uh, how could uh, God let that happen? 
The, uh, as I have been trying to, when I was young, many of you know that uh, I was a little bit of a skeptic. My dad was a pastor, and I couldn't inherit my faith, so I had um, a lot of questions uh, about God's justice in particular. And when I come to a passage like this, I come a little bit uh, bewildered. What's what's going on here? God, why are so many, why do so many people have to die? When you look at the Exodus and how the Israelites came to Canaan and they're just wiping out um, nation after nation, what is going on, God? And I have to tell you that as, um, because of my testimony, what God has blessed me with is an opportunity to talk to a lot of people that do have questions, particularly from other worldviews. And one of the first things that comes up sometimes as a legitimate question is around justice, sometimes as a criticism is always around what God is doing. Why do Christians cause harm? Why are there um, natural disasters? Why are there famines, tsunamis, all that kind of stuff, earthquakes? Questions on a deeper level, do all non-Christians go to hell? How can a loving God torture people for eternity? These are questions of justice that I get asked uh, from people with other worldviews. And one of the other ones as we're looking at the Old Testament in books like Esther, isn't God of the Old Testament particularly vengeful? So as the world looks in on what is happening in Christianity and the faith, there are issues of justice that they bring up. One of the things that got personal for me, um, new believers, as they are exploring their faith, there are some unique questions that have come up as well. So um, several years ago, a new believer just had come to faith, asked the question of me, George, God is God of love. I've given my life to God. I love God. How come he doesn't love me? How come he didn't spare my baby girl? A few years later, another new Christian asked a question. Again, totally on fire. Came to the realization that um, Jesus is the only way to God. But then some implications, he started thinking through. And he said, you know what, George? I know Jesus is my personal savior. I have a personal relationship with him now. But my, what about my ancestors? What about my mother and father? They never even heard the name of Jesus. Are they going to go to hell? Because I have great love um, for these two people, I wrestled with these two questions on their behalf. And I think it is important for us as Christians to have thoughtful textured, non-pat, honest answers for people going through real pain. Our friends, our family, our neighbors. I don't want anything to do with a faith that is simply a pat theological answer. There are issues of justice and there are things that we need to wrestle with on behalf of other people. I want something honest. I think sometimes... What we do when we talk about justice and why we struggle with it is because we always focus on the unknown. We say, okay, what was God doing in the Old Testament, particularly in passages like Esther? They didn't know Jesus. We see God's working through the nation of Israel. What about the rest of the nations? What about the people that have never heard about Jesus? I think for me, 
always when I'm tackling an issue of justice is to work from the known to the unknown. That is what's helped me. Talking with people of other worldviews, and what do I know? I know Jesus. Jesus is it for me, and when I talk about God, whatever God else God is, and whatever you say about God of the Old Testament, he cannot be different than God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. That is the incarnation. That's what we're talking about in John 14, where Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. So, when I am with a skeptic, we spend time in the gospel just looking at Jesus. Because what do I know? I know that I am under grace through Jesus. Jesus Christ. I have come face to face with my resurrected Lord and Savior. And I found that for everybody else, Jesus is confrontational. You cannot walk away from him and say, you know what? He was just another man. You have to come to C.S. Lewis' conclusion. He was liar, lunatic, or he's resurrected Lord. It changes you. So let's work backwards. If I am under Jesus Christ and the grace of the cross and resurrection, we have to define grace. What is grace? It's God's goodness or blessing or favor bestowed upon those who do not deserve it. You and me. So what about those that have never heard? What about the nations? I want to read Genesis 3.15, the first glimpse we get of the gospel. What's happened in Genesis 3? It's the fall of humankind, right? We have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have rejected God's um, moral compass. We have ultimately rejected God. Basically, this is the underlying sin of us. We are humanistic in nature. We want to do it on our own and without God. This is our open rebellion against God. And what does he say in the midst of all this? He's talking to the serpent. And he says, because you've done this serpent, you're going to be cursed But then he promises the gospel as he's talking to the serpent. He says this, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. That is Jesus Christ right there, the beginning of the gospel. So no matter how far we turn, God is there. He's moving. You move a little bit further. See God's grace in the Old Testament and how he's moving with the the nations. They're coming out of Egypt. The Exodus, right? They part the Red Seas. There's the pillars. There's all these. There's manna. There's all these miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle. Did you ever wonder why God's moving in miracles in that way at that time? What happens when they get to Canaan? Everybody knows who the God of Israel is. They know when one of the first Gentiles they encounter is Rahab. And what is so significant about Rahab? She is in Jesus Christ's genealogy. This is where Jesus came from, along with two other Gentiles. God, what we don't know is the specifics, but we can see what we know. God is moving in the nations. There is grace for everyone. And then what seals it for me is God's rescue. Because we have these holidays, and we have redemption in Purim, which is established at the end of Esther. So let's pick up in verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun. 
doing what Mordecai had written to them for Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the lot per. Okay, hold on to per right there. That means lot. For their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Now, you want to talk about the definition of a fool? It's Haman. Haman's our guy if we want to talk about being foolish. And to what Becca pointed out, what the text tells us about him is that one of the reasons he wanted to annihilate the Jews was for his own personal profit. This goes toward motive when we start talking about biblical judgment and justice. Esther is careful to tell us Jews took no plunder. It was not for self-gain. Haman is self-glorifying. And his idea about justice is focused on self. It is not a mistake. When you go back to the beginning of Esther and you see when Haman starts his plot to destroy the Jews, when is it happening? We see in chapter 3, 7. It's happening during another famous holiday and festival for the Jews. Passover. Why is he doing that? Haman is plotting. He's casting lots for the day that the Jews will be destroyed, and it's during Passover. There's irony here. In his mind, he's in control. He's going to greatly profit from this. He's openly rebelling against the God of Israel and challenging God's sovereignty in the rescue displayed in the Passover celebration. We talked about the context of this book and the Jewish tradition. When you came and you read someone's name, like you read specifically Haman's name, you would hiss, right? The Malachites are the epitome of all the world power against the Jewish nation. This is evil. This is like a Disney antagonist, you know, with the curly mustache or Crudello or whatever you want from, what was that, 101? 101 Dalmatians, right? He controls their fate. There's tension. It's the climax. In his mind, there's no escape for the Jewish nation until what? God responds. And his response to the direct challenge of a sovereignty, remember we have God's name not mentioned. The lot per, when Haman casts it, the holiday's name is taken from that. Purim is the plural of per. There's an element of chance. So we're talking about God's sovereignty. We're talking about his providence. We're talking about how he controls the irony of calling this Purim in the Jewish tradition and how they celebrate and remember it. It's, it's an exclamation point on it that God really is sovereign. God says, my hand is in it. I will protect my people. I will protect the gospel. The same thing. We've talked about parallels between the Joseph narrative Joseph in uh, 50 talks to his brothers and said, what you meant for harm, God has meant for good. That is God's response to Haman. He says, your devices, your planning, you're trying to take control and casting the lots. It doesn't work because I'm God. I'm in charge. And I'll give you the same response that I've given the nations before who have stood against my people, who have challenged the gospel. I'll reveal myself over and over again the way I did to Moses. I am. Capital I. Capital A, 
capital M, capital R-I-M, right? That is God. So here's what I know after reading a book like Esther. No matter who is in charge down here, God is still in charge. God shows his deep grace in the rule over humankind. And I think as I know that, as I trust that, as I trust the 50,000 things that are happening, I have a response to his deep grace. How do I move into that? There was a Chinese pastor, Watchman Nee, in 1937 during World War II in China. Japan is invading China. There's conflict, there's crisis, there's war. And he would go out and visit churches to encourage them during this time. How he prayed has changed how I'm going to pray. He would visit uh, churches to encourage, and one family came up and said, You know what, Pastor Nee, we're so thankful you're here. We are praising God that our business has remained intact, that we are not suffering like other Chinese believers are suffering and the nation in, in general. And his response to that was, Something's wrong. How can we praise God that we're not suffering when so many around us are suffering? Isn't God's heart breaking at this suffering? And shouldn't our hearts be broken for those who suffer too? In another home, believers gathered to pray. And they prayed that God would stop Japan and give China victory. Watchmen thought about this prayer too. Aren't there Christians in Japan? Aren't there Christians in America and Great Britain in Germany? And then he gave a history lesson right out of Esther. He talked about Jewish captivity and disobedience. And he concluded by saying, God is not interested in the future of a particular nation, but in the obedience of all his people all over the world. He said this, when we pray, it must be possible for believers from all nations to say amen. Can believers from all countries, regardless of what country they're from, Say amen to the prayers that you and I pray. Like Haman, I think sometimes we focus on our own prophet, particularly when it comes to issues of justice. The prayers I read in the Bible are not primarily praying for personal comfort or for gain. Overwhelmingly, the men and women of the Bible are not praying for themselves, but for God's glory. It changes my day when I start my day to ask God the Father what would bring you glory today. Let me give you one last text to back this up. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this. Didn't see that coming, yeah? (laughs) All the notes on the floor. It doesn't matter. We don't need them. All right, here we go. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces reflect or behold the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What I see that and how I move in my response to God's sovereignty and his providence and moving into his deep grace is how do I reflect all that through Jesus Christ? So when I talk about issues of justice and when I think about that and moving with God, for me, the faith cannot be self-focused. It can't be, okay, what can I gain from this? It can't be even the other side. I'm moving and I say I'm going to give up this. I'm going to give up this bad habit and go through this. 
from this passage how we move in the faith is simply when Jesus becomes more precious to me, becomes my treasure above everything, becomes more lovely to me that I don't want anything else except him. That's how I move. I can almost see them. What's my transition into you? All right, hold on. What do you think, Becca? How's that? (laughs) (laughs) So, Becca's going to conclude, and she's going to give us the practical how we live this out. Becca, how does uh, how has this played out in your personal testimony? How has it brought you to Wyzetta? Um, Well, God's deep grace and the response that I should have to that became very real to me at a turning point in my faith in high school, which then actually led into my calling. But before I get into that, I just want to give you a little background, a little context for me and my faith journey. So I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were both awesome influences in my life and in my faith. And so it's really hard for me to remember a time when I didn't believe in God and even in a sense when I didn't love God. Uh, but when I was about six or seven, I initially invited Christ into my life. And uh, through that point uh, forward, throughout my childhood, throughout my youth, I was involved with things at church, and uh, there were definitely moments where I felt God's presence and I sensed his movement in my life, but I would say, especially through my middle and high school years, I was kind of just going through the motions of faith. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that, um, or maybe some of you are even experiencing that right now, but for me... That changed, uh, that all changed the summer after my sophomore year of high school. So uh, I was at a Christian bookstore late that summer, and there's this book that just caught my eye. I ended up picking it up, um, buying it, and reading it. And this book was just all about what it looked like to be a set-apart woman for God. It talked about the sacrifice, the love, and the grace that God had for me, and what my response should be to that. And that was complete surrender. So uh, after I started reading it and just pouring into the book and then pouring into scripture, I was just being overwhelmed by what God had done for me and what I should live in response, how I should live in response. Um, and so I quite literally after this uh, went to my knees and just asked God to come into my life and trans- transform me to the woman he wanted me to be and really uh, to give me the strength to uh, just surrender every aspect of my life to him, not just parts of it, no matter what the cost. And so shortly after that, um, I sensed a clear calling on my life to do ministry. And it's kind of hard for me to explain. It wasn't an audible voice, but just deep down in my soul and my heart, I just felt like God was calling me to a life of ministry from that point forward. And so I ended up telling my um, then high school pastor about the change in my life and the calling I felt like God had given me. And so lots of things happened after that. Uh, He started mentoring me. And then in the youth group, I got really involved in anything to do with ministry or leadership. So I was involved in our creative leadership team, our drama team, uh, our worship team, And really through my desire to do ministry and just discover how God had gifted me, my youth pastor asked me if I would give a message on a Sunday morning. And I was terrified. Um, And I can tell you that, uh, so I I did, I did give that message um, just because I felt like 
okay, God, I think this is what you want me to do. I'm going to do it. Um, and I was really nervous. And I can tell you that the uh, people there probably wouldn't tell you it was the best message they've ever heard. Um, but I just remember when I was up there, I just felt like I was living into and doing something that God had created me to do. Uh, and so through that and then really other opportunities um, past that point and throughout college and beyond, um, God just really opened um, some unique doors and not just opened them, but gave me the boldness to actually step through them even when I was fearful. Um, I really discovered uh, my love for ministry and specifically my love for youth ministry. And uh, it's just one of my greatest joys and passions to walk alongside teenagers in their life and in their faith. And so that's why I'm super excited to be in the position I am here at Wyzetta working with uh, your high school students. But as I look back uh, at my life and my faith and where I am now, sometimes I just can't help but smile and even laugh in amazement at all God did in my life to bring me to the point that I am right now. Um, to give you a little context on just kind of my personality growing up, uh, especially when I was younger, but even through uh, middle and high school, I was very shy and not very outgoing and like speaking up in front of people in school or whatever like terrified me. It gave me a lot of anxiety. Uh, so the fact that I'm here today and I'm doing something that I love, which is weird, uh, speaking in front of people and just teaching God's word um, is absolutely amazing. Um, and I can just, as I look back, it's all about retrospect, right? As I look back, I can just see God's faithfulness and favor in my life and how He's brought me to a calling that I don't always necessarily feel qualified for or deserve, but he's brought me to this place because this is what he's called me to. And so as just an encouragement, I guess, uh, and just what I want you to hear today is that when you answer God's call, he is faithfully with you. And I think that's so evident even in this book of Esther. Um, and in your life, you may be scared to take that first step of faith into something God is nudging you to do, uh, but you really have nothing to fear when you're following his purposes because he has your back. And so that's really what we've been talking about when it comes to Esther. Here's a book where God isn't even mentioned, but his work is so evident behind the scenes with everything that happens in this book. And especially in Esther's life, and then also in Mordecai's life, which is what chapter 10 is about. So we're going to take a look at that now as we wrap up this story. Um, and I'm just going to read all the, the whole chapter just because it's very short. So Esther 10. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout his empire, even to the distant coastlands. His great achievements and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted and recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister, the authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. So we come to the end of Esther, and we see that the author highlights the life of Mordecai. And we see that he was second to authority, in authority to the king. That among the Jews, he was held in high esteem. He was, re, he was respected uh, because he worked for the good of his people. And so again, God's not mentioned, but we know and we see that he had to be working on Mordecai's behalf to bring him to the place that he was. And it seems like Mordecai was also faithful to God and faithful to the Jewish people and speaking up for them. 
And so what I think we can really get from this chapter and um, as we wrap up, Esther, just the whole book, is that God is at work. When we are obedient to God's call, when we step out in faith, he has our back. Even when we may feel in over our head, even when we might not be able to see him or feel him or recognize him in the moment, God is walking alongside you. He's with you. Even in times you might not recognize him. He is always there and has always been there. We just need to trust him and take that first step of obedience and he will be right there with us. I'm going to close us with prayer. We're also going to have um, one last song today. And uh, my encouragement uh, for you in these next few minutes is just to be reflecting on where you're at. Maybe you're in a place where you clearly see God at work in your life. Or maybe you're in a place where it's really hard to see what God is doing. Maybe you're in a spot where you feel God is calling you to step out in some way in faith, maybe similar to my life, surrendering completely to him. I just encourage you in the next few minutes to be reflecting and asking God to reveal where he is working in your life and also ask him to give you the courage to trust him and follow him wherever he might be leading you. Uh, dear Lord, I just uh, thank you for today. Thank you for um, this book of Esther, God, and the example that it is in the fact that you are always at work. No matter in no matter the season of our lives, whether we can see uh, the moments uh, that you are there, that you're working on our behalf, that you're bestowing us favor, God, I just I just pray right now that you would be working in each of our individual lives, God, to um, to cause us to pause and see those moments and uh, see where you are at work. And God, just to I just ask that you would give us the courage and the boldness uh, to step out in faith in the areas you're calling us to in our lives. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.